Well, greetings, everyone. This is a, a little unusual to have a Christmas Sunday service so far removed from Christmas. I mean, usually it's like right around the corner and we're sniffing everything that has to do with Christmas. I mean, we literally just got our, our Christmas decorations up two days ago. So here it is, two days later, and it's Christmas Sunday for us. Well, uh, we want to welcome you here. Those of you that are joining us via live stream, I know we have a number of people that are sick. We have people that are out of town. We send our greetings to you. We're glad that you can join us. And if you're from somewhere outside um, the country and you join us, I know there are some that do that, and uh, we are humbled that you would choose to do so, but we're glad that you're here. Uh, we want to welcome all of you here, and want to celebrate today in such a way to focus on certainly the birth of Jesus. And to do that this morning, we want to turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So let's stand together and uh, I'll read this and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and see what he has for us this morning. Lord, we thank you um, for the privilege of your word. Now, Lord, speak to us as we read it and as we seek to absorb it into our souls so that we can we can truly listen to, um, Lord, what you have for us today. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, once again, we come to you asking for help. And Lord, what we, what we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger today, Lord, simply to be your mouthpiece for your Holy Spirit working through this text of Scripture. Would we, Lord, be more conformed to the image of you? And Lord, would we glorify you by our attentiveness and the ways, Lord, that we are working hard at being listeners today? We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, friends, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I would like to say that the history of God's dealing with his people is a messy one. I mean, just think through some of the, the stories in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, they're disobedient. They end up eating the forbidden fruit. And the result is a mess. Noah is living in a time where ungodliness abounds. It's a mess, and yet God brings deliverance. God's promise to Abraham in his old age, but the dysfunctional family dynamics are incredibly ridiculous, aren't they? It's a mess. 
Then you have Joseph who's sold into slavery by his brothers and put into jail ultimately. It's a means which God will graciously use to intervene in the life of Israel and bring deliverance. It's a mess. Israel is in bondage in Egypt. It's a mess. Israel enters the land of Canaan only to be unfaithful to God. It's a mess. David sins with Bathsheba. It's all a royal mess. Israel and Judah persist in their sinful rebellion against God and they, they, they wander away from him. They choose a path that is not to follow him. It's a mess. So friends, the history of God's dealing with Israel has been messy. And that is what we find here in Matthew chapter 1. This is a messy text. Now, it's so familiar to us, maybe we don't acknowledge that. Maybe we don't see or feel the impact of that. But this is a messy text. It's another messy but glorious day in the story of Israel's redemption. It's the true story about a man betrothed to be married who finds out that his wife is with child. That's a mess. It's the story of God's perfect sovereign plan to give the world his only begotten son, the incarnation where the son of God lets go of his grip on heaven to take on flesh and to identify with humanity. And what, what Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is arguing for in this text, for his Jewish audience, as well as for further readers like us, is that Jesus is the promised Messiah come in the flesh to bring salvation to his people. Now, friends, if we are followers of Christ, this is good news, but for the most part, this is old news, right? I mean, we know this. It's familiar to us, but this is one of the problems with Christmas sermons. We're so familiar with these passages. Many of them we have memorized. But let's settle into the beauty and the wonder of that statement that Jesus is the promised Messiah come in the flesh to bring salvation to his people. In fact, the, the very next section, his argument is, oh, by the way, Jesus is the king And this truth is revealed for us in narrative form through the life and the lens of a man by the name of Joseph. Oh, Mary is mentioned here, but Joseph is the main character in this unfolding narrative. Now, Joseph, Joseph is, is often a neglected character in the Christmas story. Oh, he's around. He's certainly there in Christmas pageants. Of course, the Christmas story and the Christmas pageants, usually, you know, certainly Jesus is central. He has to be. He's, the, he's the, you know, the heart of the whole story of Christmas. But certainly next to Jesus is Mary, his mother. And then, of course, they have the wise men that come with all the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, of course, the shepherds. And then there's the angels. And then there's the, the cows that are lowing and the, the sheep that are bleeding. There's even a dog by the name of Haste. And Haste comes with the shepherds to the manger. And he goes with Mary to see Elizabeth. That's a dad joke, by the way, okay? I actually think that would be a really good Hallmark movie, right? You know, the Christmas story from the angle of Haste the dog. It would be really interesting. But Joseph, although present in much of our Christmas nativity reenactments, is simply decoration. He is a wallflower 
at the Christmas dance. He's simply left in the background. And we look at all the paintings of Jesus, all the sculptures of Jesus. Usually you have Mary and you have Jesus, you know, Mary holding Jesus. And, and who's always missing? It's Joseph. On a Holy Land tour, my tour guide asked the question, why is, why is Moses never there? And the answer was, tongue-in-cheek, he's always taking the pictures. See, back then, they didn't do selfies, you know. It's kind of hard to do a selfie sculpture, you know. But anyway, he's not there. But here's the reality. He's kind of like the guy who's left out of the story. But he should not be neglected. He's a man of true character, genuine compassion, and thoughtful consideration. He's the, the human glue, so to speak, whose obedience and sacrifice holds the family together. He's not to be worshipped any more than Mary is to be worshipped, but he is to be respected for his role and his function in the Christmas story. And why in particular? Because of out of the mess of his betrothal, where Mary is found to be pregnant, Joseph receives a clarifying and comforting message and so takes on God's mission for his life. You see, what we have in here is actually Joseph's commission. It's ultimately God meeting with Joseph and saying, this is what's going to happen, and this is your role, and this is your function. Let's begin by looking at the te this text, uh, first of all, by uh, looking at verses 18 and 19. And I'm saying here, what a mess. What a mess. Again, Joseph, having been betrothed to Mary, now becomes aware that his wife was with child. That's devastating news, friends. Culturally speaking, in a society that would not just be looked down upon, there was the potential, if that came public, there was rights for her to be stoned. He knows that he's not the father. And clearly he doesn't want Mary to lose face or even have any other... Uh, uh, kind of uh, implications on her life. So what is he going to do? This re really is a, a royal mess for him, isn't it? In far more ways than he can even imagine at this point in time. And what we must understand is that there are wheels that are turning in the sovereignty of God that are at work in the midst of this mess. Let's just pause there for a minute. I've mentioned a whole bunch of messiness in the Bible, haven't I? But God's wheels of sovereignty and providence are always at work in the mess. See, we always want things, you know, nice and neat and orderly and everything to go right. God's plan isn't always that way. It's often a very messy plan. But let's just think, first of all, it's a majestic mess. A majestic mess. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, talks about Jesus, uh, the fact that Jesus is the son of David. That's the whole point of those genealogies, to identify that Jesus is, has the right to the throne of God because he is on the, the line, the lineage of David. In Matthew 1, 18 through 24, where we're at right now, the emphasis is on Jesus is God. And he you know, wants his readers to see that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is Jesus. 
Yeshua, right? Jehovah is salvation. And in chapter 2, the emphasis is Jesus is the king, right? This is Herod, all concerned about who is this one born king of the Jews? So right from the beginning here, Matthew's laying out, boom, he's the son of David, he's the Emmanuel, he's the king. And Matthew is telling us, not only does Jesus have the legal right to the throne, but he is the theocratic king of the Old Testament. He is Israel's rightful king. He is Yahweh, the Lord God, come to take his throne. Now remember, there have been 400 years of silence. God had not interacted with his people for 400 years. But let's not forget that for 500 years prior to those 400 years, God had been interacting with his people saying, come to me, return to me. I'm going to send you a prophet, and they're going to, they're going to you know, prophesy for you. Basically, turn away from your wicked ways and come to me over and over and over again. Turn back from your idolatry. Turn back and receive me as your king. Turn, tear down your high places and worship me. And now when it seems all is cut off, there's silence. God has been silent for so long. God sends his greatest prophet himself. <laughs> now, we've got to be careful we're not thinking of God in, might want to say, three different modes. This is God, the Son of God, coming to earth. So God is, is bringing himself to earth. This is how John puts it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the theocratic king of the Old Testament. He himself was his own message. The king was sending ambassadors over and over and over to, to, to call the people of Israel to repentance. Now the king has descended from his almighty throne and he's come into his creation to be a prophet to us. In the incarnation, the king has come to be among us, to be with us, and to speak to us. Now, we saw the genesis of Joseph, who being the adopted father uh, of, of the son of God, gives Jesus the legal right to the throne. Joseph is in the royal lineage of David. That's, that's mentioned in our text, but it's also part of the genealogies. But there's this idea of genesis. In fact, this word in the Greek, the Greek version of genesis, is actually found twice here in Matthew's gospel in chapter 1. If you look back at Matthew 1.1, 1, 1. just look back there. It says, it, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word genealogy is the word Genesis. So you have this Genesis. This is the beginning of Jesus. This is, the, this is kind of like this, this new beginning that is being talked about here. Because in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth or the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now we just want to think about what's happening in our text. What happens at the beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1? We're told that the earth is without form and it's void. It's, it's empty. It's a wasteland. It's chaotic. And God speaks and the spirit hovers over the emptiness. And there is light and there's life and there's newness. And now as we begin the New Testament with Matthew's gospel, what do we have? We have a new Genesis. 
And in that new Genesis, the Spirit is at work again, hovering over the womb of a virgin to bring life. This is what we read in Matthew uh, 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed, in jo- uh, betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was hovering over creation in Genesis 1, and now the Holy Spirit is hovering over this virgin in Matthew 1. A new beginning, a new beginning in Christ. So truly what is happening in Joseph's life is a mess. At least from a human perspective, it is a mess. He may not understand it. We may not comprehend it. But it is truly a majestic uh, mess because the wheels of God's providence are perfectly in motion, friends. It is a majestic mess. Secondly, it is a miraculous mess. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. In other words, what we have here is the miracle of the virgin birth. Now, the virgin birth confirms the reliability of Scripture. The conception of Jesus without the help of a man confirms this reliability of Scripture. It is beyond our ability to comprehend the virgin birth. Now, we do have some other things happening in, in the Old Testament in particular. We have barren wombs that are, have, have given life, but there's always a man involved. But here we have conception without a man. And by putting this on the first page of the New Testament, Matthew is saying that the miraculous conception of Christ is in perfect harmony with the entire record of God's word. I mean, what, what Mary says, she says, how can this be? It's not just, oh, well, she was a young woman. She knows what the angel is saying. You're with child. And she's like, mm, that hasn't happened yet. And the angel's like, oh, don't worry about that. This is a miraculous thing. This is a virgin earth. I mean, you've heard about you know, God turning a great body of water into dry ground when, when Moses led the, 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 the people of Israel through the Red Sea. This is a miraculous thing. And in the same way, but in a far greater way, God is at work with his miraculous power creating life. This is why we read Isaiah 7, 14, and we're going to see in our text, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is God at work. This is God's sign. So the virgin birth confirms the reliability of Scripture, but the virgin birth also confirms the nature of Christ. And that's important for us to understand. Why? Because Jesus uh, is born sinless. He's not tainted with the sin of of Adam. And by bypassing Adam, he enters now into uh, into, Mary's womb. 
And so he's, no long, he's not the seed of Adam. He is, in a sense, an equal with Adam. We, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, he is the last Adam. He has come to usher in a new humanity. A new beginning is about to take place. So there's some specific things. There's a lot more to go into that, but there's, there's some specific things now that are true, that are miraculous about this virgin birth. But just taking the whole picture, we've seen it's a majestic mess. It's a miraculous mess, but it's also a mysterious mess. And this is where we get back to Joseph. And her husband Joseph, being a, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. For Joseph, this was a mess beyond imagination. It's hard for us to comprehend this. He's not thinking, oh, it's Christmas season. It's a wonderful life. Or it's the most wonderful time of the year. Yes. No, he's not doing that. It's not a season to be jolly. This is a mess. What's going to happen here? For Joseph, this is a devastating situation that he finds himself in. He has no idea of what is happening in the divine plan. He has no awareness that the baby inside of Mary was the very son of God and that it was the Holy Spirit who had moved miraculously to bring Jesus, uh, his conception in Mary's womb. He had no idea that everything he is experiencing, although messy, in human terms, is part of God's sovereign plan. But we're told here some things about Joseph, aren't we? And these are wonderful realities. We're told he's a just man. He's a righteous man. And we must get the sense that he's a, he's a man who's walking with God as a Jew, wanting to honor him, wanting to, to live his life for him. And he's unwilling to go through with uh, this marriage. And he decides to break this engagement to Mary in, in a private way. In other words, he's trying to save face for everyone here. He's trying to do the right thing. And he's not necessarily going after his rights, because he had legal rights if he wanted to, but he was wanting to go out in a different way, in a way that would remove the shame. And so Joseph and Mary were betrothed at this time, and we have to understand that betrothal is a little different than our engagement. A betrothal is something that is basically locked in. For us, um, engagement can be like, well, I'm engaged, but eh, you know, it can be like that. Although today, marriage is kind of like that. I understand, right? But betrothal has the idea of saying, look, you are, you are entering into this relationship. It's legally binding, and for this first season, you, you don't actually live together, and you don't actually have physical relations together. So it's in this season, before the actual marriage ceremony takes place, and while this legally binding thing had been orchestrated by parents, that this all happens. And so he had really two problems. It was a, a moral problem, from a moral perspective. He knew he could not go through with the marriage because of Mary's pregnancy. From a relational perspective, his love and kindness toward Mary were such that he could never shame her publicly. Of course, that was common practice. And nor could he demand death by stoning, which is what the law provided. Now, there's no record in any of the gospel stories here of Joseph being angry, having resentment, bitterness, any of that. He would rather take the shame upon himself, we're told here, and see that Mary was protected from any accusations 
or any tongue wagging. My friends, I mean, the bottom line here at the beginning is, this is a mess. Life is a mess. It's not perfect. And just when you think it's going great, guess what? It gets messy real quick. But now notice what happens. How do you make sense of such a majestic, miraculous, and mysterious mess? Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, I mean, he is considering. He's thinking about this. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now imagine you're reading this for the first time. You've never heard of the Christmas story. You're, you're, you're kind of reading along, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? While he's thinking these things, behold. I mean, that's what that word means. Look at this. See what happens here. Such was the confusion and mess that Joseph found himself in. And now, while he's considering this angel, the Lord comes and appears to him in a dream. Now, often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is actually a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate uh, presence of Christ with that person. Well, obviously, in this situation, it can't be a Christophany because Jesus is in the womb. But we have an angel here who is speaking on behalf of God. God is intervening here into the mess, and he, through the messenger, will give clarity, comfort, and a commission to Joseph. That's the nature of God, friends. That's the nature of God's word, to give us insight, to give us clarity, to give us comfort, to give us direction, especially when life is messy. And notice, first of all, the message of the angel. The message of the angel, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph goes to bed with his mind full of the mess that he's in. He's thinking things like, what in the world is happening? What is the best course of action? How can, how can I protect Mary? How, how can I avoid scandal? What, what is my real responsibility here? This is something I wasn't exper- expecting. How do, I, how do I function here? I'm sure that you know what it's like to lay your head on the pillow at night full of the cares and concerns of this world. And what happens? Your mind races. Numerous scenarios pop into your thinking about what potentially could happen, both good and bad. You consider the worst, you hope for the best, and you can be gripped by fear and uncertainty, but also if you're a child of God, you can overcome all that thinking with a resignation that God is still in control. And then quickly you're captivated by the cares of the world again. This is the world we live in. It's, it's messy, isn't it, right? This is what's going on with him. And Joseph falls asleep, and, and, and as that mess is on his mind, this, this, this angel appears to him in this dream. But friends, this is no ordinary dream. This is divine revelation. So don't, don't think, okay, well, tomorrow I'm going to have a dream. And, no, 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 this is, this is a unique scenario. God now speaks, and this, this, the angel speaks really in three parts. Comfort, clarity, and commission, comfort. The angel's message now, right from the start, 
does away with any concern that Joseph has about his conclusion or concerns about Mary and her pregnancy. I mean, he's got to be thinking, if she's pregnant, how did it happen? And with whom did it happen? But still being a righteous man, he's, he's not willing to, to, to rush and shame her. And he was right to not do that, he finds out. Joseph, son of David, the angel says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Don't fear. Now, just note some of these statements here. Joseph, son of David. Don't miss the significance of that. The angel addresses Joseph in the manner, or in this matter, to remind him and to tell us that Joseph is in the royal line of David. And for the Jew, ancestry matters. Anyone here taken any of those ancestry.com things? Or no? That's okay. So okay, one back there. Okay. So we we got any any kind of royalty in your bloodline and that's usually what people want to do. They want to find out if there's anyone who's royal or has money and that kind of stuff. It's just always interesting to do. Um, but here, with the Jew, ancestry matters. Your line matters. Your tribe matters. Your connectivity matters. And that's what's going on here. And we're told here, uh, not here, but we're told in the scriptures that this one, this Messiah, would be born of a woman of the seed of Abraham through the tribe of Judah and of the family of David. And so the angel is reinforcing the fact it's not just Joseph, but it's Joseph, son of David. Just hammering that home. Secondly, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. In other words, stop being afraid of the mess and take Mary as your wife. And we'll see that Joseph does that, and he's faithful to do that. Now, that would take a lot of strength of character on his part. I'm certain that as he pressed forward, people would certainly look at him strange or kind of look down at him or make little comments as he and Mary um, were, were in town or whatever they were doing. But he was not to fear taking Mary. He was to endure that whole process because there was something far more important in the works than his perceived immediate mess. So there's comfort. Secondly, there's clarity. The second part of the angel's message to Joseph is a threefold explanation as to why Mary was pregnant in such a marvelous and magnificent way. We're told here, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary, she will bear a son. Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus for he will save um, his people from their sins. And it's right there that it all begins to come together for Joseph. And he begins to make sense uh, to Joseph concerning the person and the work of Christ. Now concerning the person of Christ, we need to think through some things here. If Mary is going to give birth to a son, then he is fully man. And if that which has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, then he will also be fully God. So this is important then to realize concerning his person. He is then the anointed one. He is the God-man. Now concerning his work, what he will do. I am to call his name. This is what Joseph is realizing. I'm to call his name Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the, the Greek form of that Hebrew word Joshua. And both of those words mean Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. And that is why the angel provides an explanation to Joseph as to why he would bear 
uh, this, this name and why his adopted son would be um, Jehovah saves. Why? Because he is Yahweh and he will save. Notice the angel doesn't say he will try to save or he will hope to save or he will attempt to save or he will uh, maybe save some. No, the angel says he will save. He will save his people. If they are his people, then he must be their God. So there's some clarity for Joseph. Right? So he's got some comfort. He's got some clarity. But then we, we move on and we realize the commission here. Did you catch the commission that Joseph receives from the angel? You shall call his name Jesus. Now, culturally, it was the father who officially names the son. This is his role. This is a responsibility. And that would take place at his circumcision eight days after the child's birth. And the angel's commission to Joseph is that he is to become the father of Jesus. Now, Joseph is not the birth father. But he is, by virtue of marriage, the legal father. Now, some might say, well, then Jesus wasn't really Joseph's son. But that would be a rather insulting statement to anyone who had been adopted into a family. Now, you probably, some of, I know some people in our church are adopted. And I, I appreciate what Russell Moore uh, says about this. He was sharing this in a sermon uh, called The Christmas Story is an Adoption Story. And he explains how some people miss the reality of Joseph's adopted fatherhood of Jesus by talking about his own adoption of two boys from Russia. And he says, people will often ask about his two adopted sons. He says, people often ask, are they brothers? And he would reply, well, they are now. <laughs> but they would continue and ask, yes, 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 I, 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 yeah. but are they really brothers? You know what I mean? And he did understand what they meant but that was precisely the problem because in their minds, all they could think about was bloodlines and DNA as though at least if, if these two boys were biologically brothers, then, then there would be something real and lasting about this family unit. And he would say, in my frustration as a new father, I was trying to say the adoption itself creates something that is real. He continues, when my, life, my wife first came to me after years of infertility and miscarriage and suggested that perhaps the Lord was leading us to adopt, I said, I would love to adopt someday, but first I would like for us to have our own kids. That was the language, he says, that I use, language that indicts me now. I don't know what I was thinking about, he says. I assume that you had two categories, real children adopted children, an A plan and a B plan. But my mind was totally changed and my life totally changed once God created a real family through adoption in a way that I never would have planned. Now, friends, I, I share all that with you to say Joseph isn't some kind of like surrogate parent. He is legally rightfully, properly, 
the father of Jesus. And this is the wonder of how God takes the mess and makes something beautiful out of that mess. Even in the darkest of times and the 400 years of silence, God now is orchestrating his plan to bring two people together perfectly where there is a a mother and there's a father and they come together. And yet this is God in the flesh. See, Jesus was adopted by an earthly father so that he could be rightly and really heir of, of David's kingly line and promise. And Jesus dies for us so that we can be adopted by his heavenly father. See, we really are children if our faith is in Jesus. Jesus is really our brother in the family of God. That's adoption. That's the theology of adoption. We're not connected by, I might want to say, bloodlines, We're connected by blood because of what Christ did, but not bloodlines. We're adopted. So, the message of the angel, Jesus. The message of the prophet now, this is verses 22 and 23, and we've actually read this verse a number of times. Ed read it at the beginning of our time this morning, Isaiah 7, 14. This is a quote from there. Verse 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Now understand, this is Matthew writing now. This is not not Joseph knowing what Matthew is saying. What Matthew is doing is he's giving something for the person who's reading this or hearing this, an understanding of how this connects now to their scriptures. Because they didn't have the New Testament yet. And so he's saying, look, in this story, in this unfolding narrative, This all fulfills what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is what's going on. In case you're wondering, reader, in case you're trying to figure out how this all ties together, listener, this is what the Old Testament was talking about, and it is fulfilled right here. Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel, and then he explains that which means God with us. So all this took place to fulfill something. All the wonder, all the disturbing events, all the pregnancy and the virgin birth, it all happened because 700 years prior, God said it would happen. A virgin shall bear a son and and people will call him Emmanuel. Because those who believe will be able to see that he is God, come to us, God with us. Again, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the angelic announcement spoke about his person and work. The prophetic announcement, or fulfillment, I should say, speaks to the method of his work. He is God with us. The the intent, there's a method. God wanted to be with his people. So the son left the glories of heaven and willfully set aside some of his divine attributes and veiled his eternal glory in the robe of fallen humanity. He, He lived among us. He knew the weaknesses and limitations of the body. He felt hunger. He grew tired. 
He increased in wisdom. He experienced temptation. He felt the sting of hatred and betrayal and denial. He understood false accusation and suffering, even unto death. How was God with us? In every way possible. Now, friends, hear this. The Son of God fully entered into our world so that we might fully enter into his heaven. The Son of God experienced everything we are that we might experience everything that he is. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that we as sons of men might become sons of God. He came to be with us. So what a mess. And then, what a message. And now we want to see what a mission. Because what's happened here is the angel has spoken to Joseph and he now has a responsibility. We're told he wakes up from his sleep. And what's he going to do? Well, he knows that he'd been commissioned by God, and we can see that he is committed to the mission in three ways. First of all, he's committed to the Lord. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He was obedient. He takes on the responsibility given to him by God through the angel to carry out his mission to be this adopted father of Jesus. He owns his mission. Secondly, he's committed to his wife. He took his wife and knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So he pressed on in obedience to the Lord's command to not divorce Mary, but to press on and to marry her, even though that that might be taking on certain shame for them together as a couple. And to not have any sexual relations until, until after Jesus was born. He's committed to the Lord, he's committed to his wife, but he's also committed to his son. Joseph understood that he was not the physical father, but he also understood that he was the legal father. It says, and he called his name Jesus. He took on that responsibility as a father to name his son And Joseph adopts Jesus as his own and becomes his legal father. He really is his father. Now, this is the mission that he's been called to. So here's just this mess, friends. And and just think about it in in, in terms of, of your life. Life is a mess, and yet God speaks, doesn't he? He's constantly speaking. Aren't you thankful that we don't have 400 years of silence? Don't, don't, be, uh, you know, don't be cavalier about the fact that you have God's word, that he speaks to you through his word daily, regularly, and he makes sense of your mess through his revelation from his word. But he also calls us to mission. He calls us to live out of the things that we're being commanded to do. He calls us to, to in a sense, take on the, the, the mantle or the things that, that Joseph is an example of here. Now, I realize, you know, we're not in the Christmas story. But the principle here is pretty much the same. Life is messy. God speaks. 
and we're called to listen and be obedient and flesh it out. It's pretty simple, really, when you think about it. Now, let's just kind of draw this to a close. Although we can rightly learn a thing or two from the experience and example of Joseph, like his just character, his kindness to Mary, his commitment toward his mission. Those are all wonderful truths. The point of this text is not actually about Joseph, is it? When you think of what what Matthew is seeking to do here, he's not writing this gospel to say, hey, I want to show you Joseph. Notice Joseph. No, he's saying, I want to show you Joseph, but I want to show you Joseph. Why? Because he's the father of Emmanuel. He's the father of Jesus. See, Jesus is the focal point, ultimately, of this story. So let us just kind of retrace three realities that we've, we've already encountered here in this text about Jesus. First of all, Jesus came to be with us, to be Emmanuel. He identifies with messy people who have messy lives. He brings restoration. He brings hope and healing to those who trust in his salvation. Ultimately, he makes all things new. And friends, Jesus entered into this messy world with a divinely orchestrated messy birth. When Jesus entered into his ministry, if you remember, things got really messy real quick. There's the messiness of the crowds chasing after him, grabbing at him, pleading with him. There's the messiness of the disciples who didn't always listen, who did not comprehend why he came, who would stand and rebuke him when he would speak, who squabbled among themselves, who were more concerned about being the greatest in the kingdom, who who scattered in the garden. And there's the messiness of his interaction with the religious leadership, right? having to deal with their arrogance and their questions and their hatred and their plotting and their lies. And then there's the messiness of his death, false accusations, injustice, rejection and hatred, physical torture through scourging and the thorns on his head and ultimately crucifixion. Jesus knows messiness. And he's come not just to be with us in that messiness, but he's come to identify with us in that messiness, right? Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is very, in every respect, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He understands messiness. So when you're done today and you return to your messy marriage, your messy family, your messy Christmas gatherings, your messy job, your messy sickness, your messy trial, those messy neighbors, when you interact with your messy church, and just living in this messy world, remember in all of those messy situations, he is both present with you and he identifies with you. 
And friends, we, we need to know this. And we need to preach this self to ourselves over and over and over again. If you're trying to live the squeaky clean life in a squeaky clean world, you're going to have trouble because it's not squeaky clean. And you can't say, well, I read my Bible today, therefore nothing bad is going to happen. No, in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, a mess is all part of what he uses to, to grow us and to accomplish his purposes. So Jesus came to be with us. Secondly, what we've seen is not only did Jesus come to be with us, but Jesus comes to save us. You'll call his name Jesus. All right? <laughs> Jehovah is salvation. If we think that we have it all together, we won't think that we're in need of any help. We don't need saving. We don't need to be rescued. But he repeatedly shows his listeners, as Jesus is ministering the gospel when he comes, he repeatedly shows his listeners that they don't have it all together. If they had it all together, he wouldn't have had crowds chasing after him. They understood because of his ministry and because of his teaching that they were in desperate need of help. He says, I am the bread of life. Why? Because he knows they aren't eating any spiritual food and he is their only answer. He's the one who, who brings the water of life. And friends, it's important that we realize that beyond all the struggles and messiness that we face in this world, our greatest need is spiritual. Now, certainly, you may have some physical needs, and we empathize with that. You may have some relational needs. Those are important. You may have some financial needs. Those could be pretty significant and staggering. You may have some emotional needs. Those are real. But Jesus is most concerned with your spiritual need for your sins to be forgiven by his shed blood on the cross. And ultimately, Jesus came into this world to go to a cross, and on that gruesome cross, he would save us. He would rescue us from our sin. And the greatest gift that you and I receive, friends, is the gift of salvation. Why? Because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to be showered with his grace and kindness. We don't deserve to be rescued. Jesus came to be with us. He came to save us. And third, Jesus came to adopt us. Now, I don't know how many of you people go fishing here. Uh, all right, one in the back, good. All right, so I'll have one person in the back to understand this, right? Jesus isn't coming, so to speak, to us with a catch and release mindset. He's not with us and then saves us or rescues us only now to release us back. <laughs> no, he, he is with us and he saves us and then he adopts us. He doesn't abandon us. He calls us his family. Now, some of you have heard that Ellie and I are grandparents now. We've experienced the joy of our son and daughter-in-law bringing life into this world. Now, he's a cute bundle of joy. But he's helpless. He's dependent 
can't eat by himself. He can't dress himself. He can't change his own diaper. He needs mommy and daddy and grandma and grandpa to care for him. I think in that order, probably, so it's going to be. And without that care, he will not last long at all. But because he is my blood, I am committed to his well-being. I just, I just want you to begin to think now why, why family and that image is important here. But think about your situation. You and I were like orphans. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to an orphanage before. Now, here in the States, we don't have as many orphanages as we used to, but you go outside the country different places, they have them. I've been to them in Russia. Not all, all orphanages are the same, but I remember being in there, and one of the things, or a number of the things that kind of struck me is just the despair in the faces of, of the children. They're empty faces. They're, they're, they're rocking back and forth. That's something that's very unique to being in an orphanage. It's, it's some kind of, a, a, kind of a, a strange way that they're able to kind of maintain some kind of semblance of normalcy in their world. There's a numbness going on. Now, don't get me wrong. The workers were good people. They're hardworking people. But they weren't family. And these kids lacked the warmth and the love and the affection and the security that only a family can bring. So hear this, friends. It's no small thing to realize that when Jesus came to be with us and to rescue us and then to welcome us into his family, that we are his adopted brothers and sisters. We are adopted as sons into that family. That's no small thing, friends. Because we haven't been abandoned. He doesn't rescue and release us. He rescues and adopts us. He says, you are now my family. See, friends, Jesus understands our messy world. He's with us. He rescues us. He adopts us to live our lives for his glory. So let Jesus be fully present in your messy lives today. You won't regret it. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, just to, to consider afresh the Christmas story through the lens of what you were doing with Joseph. Lord, not, there's not a one of us in this room that can say that our life is not messy to some degree. And Lord, you are always faithful to speak into our situation, to give us counsel and wisdom and guidance. And for us, Lord, to, to then lean on that and to live our lives, Lord, in a way that would honor and glorify you. But Lord, in our passage today, we, we've learned some things about just how wonderful you are in your incarnation. Lord, you, you came to be with us. You came to save us. You come to adopt us, Lord. And we're, we're thankful, Lord. We're, we're overwhelmed that we could be considered to be family with you. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. It's all undeserving. And we give you all praise in your precious name. Amen.